Good morning, Castleton Church family. It's always a joy for us to be able to worship together. Hope that you were encouraged by the last couple Sundays as we considered how we can be faithful in affliction and those stories we heard of Christians doing just that around the world. One of those stories uh, I mentioned was Pastor Andrew Brunson. And if you'd like to hear more of his story, as well as a couple of others, there's an event coming up on Friday evening that you want to know about. It's called Imprisoned for Christ. It's put on by Voice of the Martyrs. You'll hear three uh, testimonies of uh, believers that have endured imprisonment for their Christian faith. We're going to have a watch party here at church. It's a free event. would love for you to come and be encouraged hearing of faith in affliction. Uh, we're going to have a congregational meeting um, tonight at 5 o'clock. Um, we would love for you to be able to join us for that in person if you're able. Most of the meeting will be live streamed, but um, to be able to vote and participate fully, we'd like to be here in person. Uh, we will vote on our budget as well as uh, have new members being voted on and talk about the year past and what the Lord has us, for us as a church in the year ahead. So I hope you'll be able to participate with us. Uh, this morning we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. I'll read it before we'll study God's word together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 starting in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that, I was, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know that what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we, we need your help. Um, certainly with texts like this one as a preacher, I feel the need for your empowerment that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. We also need the help of your spirit to illumine in our hearts 
your word. Would you do that as you have promised you would do? Would you help us to see wondrous things in your word? Would you make clear the things that, frankly, aren't very clear on the surface? And would you encourage us to be faithful until the day our Lord Jesus returns? We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. I remember driving down the highway on my way to seminary and seeing a giant billboard. It said, save the date, May 21st, 2011, Jesus Christ returns. Well, as you might imagine, billboards like that being around town would be a hot topic in a seminary classroom, so it didn't take long for us to figure out who was behind them. It was a, a man by the name of Harold Camping. Uh, you may know his ministry, Family Christian Radio. It, it had stations all over the country and internationally, a multi-million dollar ministry. He had been around for a long time, and he had been setting dates for the return of Christ for a long time. Uh, the first of those dates was back in 1988, then again in 1994, then the date I saw on that billboard, May 21st, 2011. Well, as you might have already surmised, that day came and went with no return of Jesus, but don't, don't worry, he didn't give up that easily. He, he realized that his calculations had just been a little wrong. He set a new date, October 21st, 2011, said that Jesus had spiritually returned the first time, and the judgment had already occurred. No one could be saved, but the final end of all things wouldn't come until October. Well, that date also came and went. And uh, by that point, the press was on his case. He was literally hiding out in his house, and uh, his ministry collapsed in shame. Now, that event discouraged many. There are many people that point to the predictions of Harold Camping and say that they lost their faith because of his failed predictions that Jesus would return. And Harold Camping is not alone in this sort of speculation about things to come. Now, there have been a long line of doomsday prophets predicting when the events leading up to and the actual return of Christ will happen. Their rallying cry is something like this. Uh, we, we may not be able to know the day or the hour Jesus will come back, but we can certainly know the week and the month. Well, frankly, that's a recipe for disaster for the Christian faith. And it's uh, uh, one of the reasons I'm so thankful for as difficult of a text as this one is this morning that it's in our Bibles because it is the cure for the crisis of faith that all this speculation uh, brings. The Thessalonian church had a spiritual disease of worry. They were anxious that they had missed the second coming of Christ. And for that reason, the Apostle Paul writes to them and assures them something we need to know also. You have not and you will not miss the second coming of Jesus. Let me say it again. You have not and you will not miss the second coming of Jesus. When it happens, you will know it, and you won't miss it. We'll go through the text in two sections. Uh, the first one will be much briefer than the second. Uh, first, in verses 1 through 2, we'll see the crisis of confusion. The crisis of confusion. 
And then second, the much larger section in verses 3 through 12, we'll examine the coming rebel and his rebellion. The coming rebel and his rebellion. Let's begin in that first section, the crisis of confusion in verses 1 through 2. I'm going to reread verses 1 through 2 because this is the thesis statement of the book. This is the main point of this letter as far as I can tell. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, now being gathered together with him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. There was a pastoral concern in the Apostle Paul's heart. This Thessalonian church had been shaken and alarmed by some sort of prophetic message. It's clear Paul doesn't know exactly what it is. He, he, he lists three possibilities, a, a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from him. We don't know exactly what the message was, but we know the, the gist of it. it. It was something about the second coming that suggested that the Thessalonians had missed it. That it had already happened. That they had been asleep of the wheel and missed Jesus coming back. Now, that would be a very, very discouraging thing for them. Think about why. Remember the last couple of weeks we've been examining, had been examining their faith in the midst of of affliction and persecution. They were a church that was suffering for Jesus. Imagine someone coming along to a believer in North Korea, one of the hundreds of thousands of, one of the you know, 50 to 70,000 estimated believers that are in concentration camps in North Korea, someone who's suffering for Jesus and does not see any relief coming, and saying to them, uh, didn't you know Jesus already came back? The, the judgment's already come. There's no new heavens, new earth coming. This is all there is. Don't you see how discouraging that would be if you were in the midst of suffering? This is as good as things are going to get? Really? Well, that's the crisis. And that's what leads to the cure. And we're going to spend much more time on this in verses 3 through 12. The cure is to put our attention on things that will come with and precede the coming of Jesus. Two things specifically, the coming rebel and his rebellion in verses 3 through 12. Now before I, I jump, jump into this section, let, let me just be frank. This is one of the hardest passages in the entire Bible to interpret. Um, I've been studying, preparing for this particular sermon for months, and as I have studied to answer the many questions this passage raises, I realize it just brings to mind even more questions. I was helped as I came across a quote from the great theologian Augustine, finding out I was not the only one that felt this way. Augustine, commenting on this passage, he said, frankly, I have no idea what it means. I have to confess I was tempted to just read that quote and end the sermon here and sit down. Uh, thankfully, the Lord convinced me to do otherwise and to share what I have learned. Now, but let me just say, there's no way that I will be able to answer all of everyone's questions, and it is, will literally be impossible for what the conclusions we draw to be ones that all Christians will agree on. Uh, there are so many 
fraught questions of interpretation in this passage. It's inevitable that you and many other Christians in our congregation will disagree about what exactly some of the specifics mean. So that means we need to study this with humility. We need to hold it very loosely. And we need to be okay disagreeing with each other on many of the details that we're going to dive into here. Uh, and also, let me say, if, if you are the sort of person that really wants to know the identity of the Antichrist and the timing of world events related to him, uh, this sermon will undoubtedly disappoint you. I, I'm not going to name who I think this person is, because frankly, I don't think the text leads us to do that. I think that's not the, the point of it. But I do think that the point of it is something that we will all benefit from. It will give us comfort and confidence in the coming of our Lord Jesus. Uh, the main point of it is very simple to understand. You, you can see it right there in verse 3. It's that certain things have not happened, and that's how you can know Jesus hasn't come back. Certain things haven't happened, and that's how you know Jesus hasn't come back. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless. And then he lists off the two things that must occur. I, I was thinking of a moment that was parallel in my life. I was uh, traveling alone, in, in, um, I was sitting in an airport one time, and I had several hours to kill before my flight. And I'm the sort of guy, I could fall asleep any time, anywhere, basically. So I just uh, closed my eyes for a little bit. And faster and deeper than I expected, I, I slept. Well, I had that moment of waking up and being disoriented. And maybe you know that moment right after you wake up. And I had a thought, oh no, I have overslept and I have missed my flight. Now that thought was quickly dispelled by two things that I observed. I couldn't see the plane from where I was sitting, but I could tell the plane had not yet left because I'd flown enough times to know that if there was a line of people waiting to go, to go through a door, and if there was a door that was still open that led to the get, jetway to the plane, then that meant that the plane had not, in fact, taken off. There are some things that you can use as a bit, uh, two pieces of evidence that you can know that the second coming of Christ has not occurred. According to Paul, the first of those is that the rebellion must come first. The rebellion must come first, unless the rebellion comes first. Uh, the word for rebellion, your translation, if you have the King James, might say something like the uh, falling away must come first. It, the, the word for it is uh, apost uh, apostasy, where we get a word for apostasy. And, and it ha generally has religious overtones of God's people rebelling against him or abandoning their faith in him. For, it's for that reason, many interpreters think this is referring to mostly Christians that abandon their Christian faith and allegiance to Jesus. As I've studied it, though, I've also realized that that same word, apostasia, can be used to describe the rebellion of like a band of marauders against a civil government. If you combine that with a couple other hints in the passage, when we get into the 
man of lawlessness himself. He opposes not just the real God, but every so-called God, as well as passages like Matthew 24 that show us that this rebellion will be in some sense global and involve nations. I, I think it's right to understand this as both. Both a great falling away of people inside the church, but also a great spirit of rebellion that takes hold of the whole world in opposition to, to Christ. This rebellion will be very dark. It'll be a day of increased deception and persecution for the church. If you study other passages that talk about this period, I think Matthew 24, or Daniel 12, or would be a couple of those, it's, it's sometimes called uh, the tribulation. And, and you'd, right, you'd be right to say it will be a very low point for those who are alive during it. So this rebellion must come first. Now notice we're not told when exactly the rebellion will come or how long it goes on, just that it must happen. But there's a second thing, and more, most of the passage is concerned with this. It is that the rebel himself must be revealed. Verse 3, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Many people refer to this figure as the Antichrist, borrowing language from 1 John. As we go through the passage, I'll, I'll think we'll see that that's an apt title for him. There are questions of, endless questions of uh, trying to identify a single figure that this might be or uh, an entire group or movement that it might be describing. Uh, in the earliest days of Christianity was often Roman emperors that people thought were, this was referring to as they persecuted the Christians. That, that is until the Roman Empire became Christianized. And at that point, people started identifying Islamic leaders or Islam in general as the Antichrist. Uh, we, we saw that during the Reformation, very often the reformers identified the Pope as the Antichrist. And uh, for good measure, the Catholics turned around and identified Martin Luther and other reformers as him. Down through the ages, we've seen tyrants and dictators identified as them, Stalin and Hitler, uh, political le leaders like Henry Kissinger, even pop culture figures like Oprah Winfrey. There are, are no shortage of people that have been identified as this figure. Uh, my favorite story in all uh, studying all this, the story of two missionaries named Edith and Ralph Norton. Back in the 1930s, they were over in Europe and firmly convinced that the Antichrist could be identified and in fact suspected it might be the dictator Mussolini. Well, the most amazing thing happened. They managed to get an audience with Mussolini and asked him if he was the guy. Justin Taylor's blog uh, clued me into this anecdote if you want to find it. They asked him, do you intend to reconstitute the Roman Empire? At first, Mussolini had no idea what they were getting at. Then the Nortons walked the Italian fascist through the biblical prophecies. As they proceeded, Mussolini apparently leaned back in his chair and listened, fascinated. Is that really described in the Bible? He asked the missionaries. Where is it found? 
By the time the Nortons were through with him, Mussolini apparently believed and maybe even hoped that he was the long-awaited world dictator prophesied in the book of Daniel. True to form, uh, Deuce II had no reservations about taking on the role of the prophesied antichrist. Well, as much fun as that story is, I, I don't think that that is in fact what we are supposed to do as Christians, trying to identify this figure. Uh, in fact, we're told explicitly that he will be revealed that's the same word that was used earlier in this letter to describe the revealing that will happen, the apocalypsis of our Lord Jesus. And that is, he's hidden. You can't see him until something happens to reveal him. That, that means speculating about who he is is likely going to be a very fruitless exercise. So if we're not supposed to identify who this guy is, what, what, is, what can we say about him? Well, I'm going to briefly walk through six things this passage says about him, six of the most important things, and then we'll draw some conclusions first from, it, from that. So six things about this figure. First, he will oppose God. If you were to say one thing was true of him, he is here to oppose God and everything that has to do with God. His first title, man of lawlessness, that'd be literally man of no law, gives that idea of a rebel in opposition to someone in authority. It's also made more explicit that he opposes every institution, every so-called God or object of worship. His purpose is to twist and to divert attention away from the true authority of God. Second, in verse 4, we see that he will exalt himself. It's he who opposes and exalts himself. He will lift himself up and claim the place of God himself. Notice he, he actually declares himself, proclaims himself to be God. Now there's a sort of monstrous logic to this. If God is due of our worship, then what's the greatest thing you can do in opposition to God except to steal his worship? It's clear enough that he will declare himself to be God. What is clear as mud is that question, what in the world does it mean that in verse 4 that he will take his seat in the temple of God? Well, there are lots of different theories. It, it could be referring to Herod's temple back in Paul's day. It could be referring to the rebuilt temple. Some people think will be rebuilt before the coming of Jesus. Or it could be a metaphorical reference to the church, as Paul often does, referring to believers as God's temple. I think the best explanation, though, is one of history and theology. Back in Paul's day, there would have been something very much at the forefront of the believers that were living. During a, a time not too far in the distant past, the, the, uh, there was a revolt of Jews, called, uh, something called the Maccabean Revolt. And during that time, a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV committed one of the greatest acts of evil of all time. He occupied the Temple Mount, killed the priests, went inside the temple, set up a statue, and then started sacrificing pigs on the altar. And then here's the, the crown, his crowning achievement. He declared himself to be God. 
Now, the Jews had taken that event and connected it to the prophecies in Daniel, Daniel 9 and 11, about this abomination that causes desolation, that will put an end to worship in the temple. That was very common in their day. And in fact, Jesus himself seems to, to uh, do this. Along with the Jews in his day, there was this expectation that while those prophecies were partially fulfilled, that Antiochus was something like a pattern to future greater evils to come. So just for a second, look at Matthew 24, 15. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus seems to have this view in mind. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, that's the reference to Daniel, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So in their minds, Antiochus and this sort of monstrous opposition to God, declaring yourself to be God, was a pattern of opposition to God and to his people. And that meant that if you reference someone standing in the temple declaring themselves to be God, there were categories that immediately come to mind. So I think the best way to understand this is Paul is saying that this guy is going to do the worst act of evil in opposition to God possible. I don't think that requires a rebuilt temple. Now, if you ask me what exactly will it be that he does, I, I will answer, I have no earthly idea. I don't think the point is the specific act, as if, I think the point is the magnitude of the act and how monstrously evil it will be. Third thing he does, he will do satanic signs and wonders. You, you see that in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. He is not Satan. But he uses the power of Satan to do miracles. Uh, miracles that are false. Not, not in the sense that they're fake, but in the sense that they're not meant to lead you to truth, but in fact to deceive you. That brings us to the fourth thing he will do. He will deceive many. His message and his miracles, as false as they are, they will resonate with people that don't want to believe the truth of the gospel. And so as a result, they will be confounded in a delusion, one that will lead to their undoing. Verse 10 describes it. It's frankly horrible to, to think about. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. So he'll lead this time of rebellion and deception. And fifth, we see about him that his time is already here, but at the same time, it's not yet here. You see that in verses six through seven. I'm so thankful in our core class this last Wednesday that um, Nicholas uh, brought that up as he taught. That very often when we talk about prophetic uh, sections of the Bible, there's an already not yet to them. There's a part of it that's true, and yet there's a, a part of it that is still to be fulfilled in the future. We see here that this man is already present in a movement, but that one day the man himself will arrive in verse 6. And you know 
what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's a very similar thought to the one in 1 John. 1 John 2.18. Read it briefly. Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming. There's it. Not yet. So now many Antichrists have come already. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. So that, that is undoubtedly true of this figure. He is already present in terms of his movement and his goals and even the deception that he will bring in greater measure to come. And yet this figure himself, he's not yet here. You see that language? He is being restrained by something or someone until the right time. Uh, now, this is another one of those gigantic knots of interpretation. Who or what is it that is restraining the Antichrist from appearing until the right time? Um, if you have an ESV study Bible, the section on this passage goes through some possible explanations that I think is very clear and succinctly does that. Uh, the view I think makes the most sense I think it's likely referring back to another passage in Daniel, Daniel 12. And it's actually referring to Michael the archangel. That Michael has some sort of role in restraining the opposition and evil against God and his people. And that at, at a certain point in the future, right before the great tribulation, Michael will arise. That is, he'll get out of the way. And that will usher in this period and the man and his movement of rebellion. Uh, again, hold that one super loosely. As I went through all the, the different options, they've all got issues. Uh, that was the one that had the least in my estimation. So we see here that he will deceive many. We see he's already here, but he's also not quite here. But the the pattern and the movement that he leads is already active. People are already rejecting and being deceived uh, away from the gospel message. Now, up to this point, I have to say, it'd be pretty hard to make the case that you could find this encouraging. Uh, so far, we've looked at the horizon, and it looks like some pretty ominous dark clouds coming. How, how are we supposed to not be shaken or alarmed if these days are coming? Well, I, that's why this last thing about him is the, the most important of all of them. And we see it in verse 8. He will be destroyed by Jesus. He will be destroyed by Jesus. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It's interesting as you look at this passage, there's a contrast being set up. It's apt to call this lawless one Antichrist, because he is the opposite of Jesus in every way. Uh, that series of contrasts, uh, you can see it very easily. Uh, the, the Antichrist, he will deceive many. But, but Jesus, well, Jesus leads people into truth. The, the Antichrist, he comes and sets himself up as God. Well, Jesus is actually God the Son incarnate. The Antichrist exalts himself. Jesus only lets his father exalt him at the right time. The Antichrist comes with false signs that turn people away from the truth of the gospel. Jesus, all of his miracles have the message that he is the promised Messiah. They lead people to believe in the gospel. 
But the most important of these contrasts is what happens when these two contrasting figures collide. There are two revealings. The revealing of this man of lawlessness and the revealing of our Lord Jesus. And when they are both revealed, one very climactic, quick thing will happen. When this man appears, Jesus will destroy him. Fake Jesus meets real Jesus. And in a moment, it'll be obvious that all of his boasting, all of his supposed power was nothing compared to the true king overall. We're told that Jesus kills him by the breath of his mouth. It's probably a reference to Isaiah 11. I think certainly has the idea that this will be an effortless defeat. It will be as if the big bad wolf will be blown over by the Lord Jesus himself. And and notice after he is defeated, it's as if he was never there at all. He will be brought to nothing. You'll forget him as soon as he is defeated. What we see here then is a vision. A vision of dark days to come. But ultimately, dark days that will be pierced by a a bright ray of sun. That the coming of our Lord Jesus will bring an end to this man and his movement in the period of suffering that Christians will endure. And that, and that, that moment will be the second coming of Christ itself. Okay, so what, uh, I'm sure you have a ton of questions at this point, but you may be asking the question, what does it have to do with how we live today? What, all these details, all these difficult questions to work through, so what? Well, let me give you the so what. Three, three different ways that we can apply this passage to ourselves. First, just as a pastoral word in the front end, uh, let's strive for balance on these speculative, difficult texts. There is a tendency to be almost obsessive with really hard parts of the Bible to, to get into these, this habit of speculating and oftentimes to do so even to the point where we end up discouraging ourselves and others. Uh, But recognize this passage and other passages talking about these, uh, the return of Christ and these things to come, they're almost always there to encourage us. If we lose balance, we lose our ability to be encouraged by them. Uh, In the meantime, we need to focus on the things that are more clear. The gospel needs to be preached by you. You need to grow in your walk with Jesus. And you need to be sure that Jesus is going to come back. Now there is definitely also here a call to hear and respond to the gospel message while the day is here. If you're listening to this message and you're not a Christian, please don't take for granted the fact that you might hear the message that Jesus is the way to God and that you actually might be interested in it. Uh, There's an interesting thing that happens in the passage. In verse 11, he shifts from the things in the future to the present. And he warns that rejecting the truth of the gospel of Jesus actually results in you believing a lie. Friend, if you're hearing 
a Christian tell you that you need to believe in Jesus to be saved from your sins, and if any part of your heart thinks maybe that's true, don't take for granted that it will always be that way. For everyone that ultimately ends up rejecting Jesus, there is a final time that they will entertain the gospel message. At a point none of us knows, but at some point, our rejection will be our last rejection. And at that point, according to this passage, you are condemned. There is no hope left for you. So friend, if you have anything stirring in your heart as you hear of the possibility that you could be forgiven by God, that you could spend eternity with Jesus in heaven if you believe in him, if if any part of you thinks that might be true, respond to that message while you can. Because if you don't love the truth, friend, one day you will be made to love a lie. Undoubtedly, though, the the main message of this passage for us is for us to be comforted by the days ahead. As Christians, we should have the view that our best days are ahead of us. Yes, even if there are some dark days to come. All of the petty tyrants and tin pot dictators, all of the men that try to use their power to oppose God, one day all of them are going to be shown to be utterly powerless in the face of true power, the power of our Lord Jesus. If you have that sort of view of the suffering coming, it allows you to live through the sufferings that are in right here and right now with greater confidence. You can, if you know that the big bad wolf himself will be blown over by Jesus, you'll be able to stare down the precursors to him that are coming. Uh, A few weeks ago, I shared with you the story of a Christian by the name of Virginia Prodan, a woman not even five feet tall, who stared down a cruel dictator, did so for the sake of Christ. Now, it seemed pretty hopeless while she was arguing in courtrooms to defend Christians and getting beat up and thrown in jail for her faith. But what's amazing is what happened after that dictator, Ceausescu, was deposed. She was able to go back to Romania. And you know, she was utterly amazed by the most mundane thing. In a country where Bibles used to be enough to get you thrown in jail or possibly even killed, now the bookstores were full of them. You could buy as many Bibles as you wanted. And many of the people... And the government that had been opposing her now were Christians themselves. That's the sort of reversal that's coming. We don't have to know the identity of the man of lawlessness. Or when that great day of rebellion will come to know. That Jesus. Jesus will blow him over with no effort whatsoever. That all the evil that opposes God will be frustrated and ultimately defeated. And that means our joy, our security, and yes, our forever with God is ultimately secure. So brothers and sisters, know that you have not missed the second coming of Christ. You can have confidence that it's coming. And you can even find comfort in what it will bring. Because when the great enemy of God is revealed, Jesus will destroy him. And if you're wondering who he is, well, just wait until you see Jesus kill him, and then you'll know 
for sure. I want to end our sermon with the words from the song we sang right before we started, Ancient of Days. Though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King. Then my joy complete, standing face to face in the presence of the Ancient of Days. Amen, brothers and sisters. May God grant us a vision of that glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus. And would it give us the comfort and confidence not to be shaken or alarmed. Not by any prophecy anyone might bring or not by the prospect of suffering that may precede his coming. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that your, your word would help us through this crisis of faith that so many have been shaken by. Would you instill in our hearts that confidence? Would you comfort us? Knowing we haven't missed the second coming of Jesus. And that as bad as it might be, the things that will come before his coming. That surely we will see him defeat all of your enemies. And save your people once and for all. Grant us eyes of faith to see that day. And to be faithful until it comes. Come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray in his mighty name. Amen.